uh, this is a letter that was printed in the Arkansas Democrat, the newspaper there. I, I wonder if this is true. Uh, regardless, it, it made me laugh. Uh, listen. Uh, women are very touchy about certain gifts, as I discovered years ago after buying my girlfriend a catcher's mitt for her birthday. It seemed to me a particularly thoughtful gift, especially since she claimed not to be getting enough physical exercise. But apparently she didn't see it that way. The minute she unwrapped it, she ran sobbing from the room. At first, I thought those were tears of joy streaming down her face. I figured she was overwhelmed at being the first in her crowd to have a catcher's mitt, that sort of thing. Or I figured she was so excited she couldn't wait to get outside and work on her throws to second base. But when she didn't return after a few hours, I got the hint. Here I'd spent all that time running around from one sporting goods store to the next trying to find the perfect gift. I mean, we're talking the Johnny Bench model here, top of the line. And she calls me insensitive. I mean, you'd think I gave her a subscription to Field and Stream or a box of shotgun shells, which everybody knows should be saved for Christmas stocking stuffers. Personally, I think she just had a lot of anger in her and took it out on me. Not that I'm trying to play amateur psychologist or anything. <laughs> Do you know anybody like that? who struggles this time of year because it's time to go buy gifts. Uh, Dave Barry, uh, the columnist, says that uh, it actually, uh, the, the problem here dates back to uh, the original Christmas. He says, this problem dates to the very first Christmas. We know from the Bible that the wise men showed up in Bethlehem and gave baby Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold is always a nice gift. But frankincense and myrrh, at least according to my dictionary, are gum resins. Who gives gum resins to a baby? The answer is men. Uh, this is an extreme example, right? Um, the, the, you might know somebody in your, your life like this, but the truth of the matter is that every one of us struggles a little bit, including the best gift givers, sometimes. Um, Retailers set the bar high at this time of year. How many commercials have you seen uh, from K Jewelers where you need to go spend uh, several hundred dollars on the perfect gift? And once you do at K Jewelers, you know what? Every kiss begins with K. <laughs> you know why the pressure is here, right? Gifts uh, communicate. Gifts cannot make up for a relationship that's not there. Some people think that gifts, that's what they're supposed to do. They, they can't. But they're one of the ways that they communicate what you think about or how you value your relationship. With that in mind, I want to direct your attention to the book of Leviticus, chapter 22. Leviticus, chapter 22, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to look at verse 17. And here are some specific standards in God's Word where He, for the Israelites, set down uh, practices or the conditions under which certain animals can be offered as sacrifices. We're looking these days at this ancient worship manual for the Israelites, and uh, we're going to talk about why animal sacrifices were important in a minute. But the earlier chapters in Leviticus, as they talk about sacrifices, had used the phrase over and over again, unblemished, unblemished. They have to be perfect animals. 
This section in Leviticus 22, 17-33 offers us more conditions, more specifics about what it means to be unblemished. Uh, the reason that I want to talk to you about this this morning, the reason I'm excited to show this to you, is because of a very important principle that this text illustrates that I think actually is repeated all the way through the Bible. And here's what that principle is. Sacrifice reflects your relationship with God. Sacrifice, sacrifice is still central to what it means to have a relationship with God. I think that's true. I think that's true, though, maybe in the way that you might not be thinking about foremost in your mind. Most of us, I think, consider sacrifice in the wrong direction. We use the wrong sort of sacrifices as a reflection of a real relationship with God. And what I want to do is I want to show you how and why that's true, and I want to use this passage to do it. Now, here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk through this passage. We're going to read it, and every now and then I'll stop and explain some of the most important parts and the most, more obscure parts. And it is, by and large, not a very difficult passage to understand or difficult to uh, uh, grasp what's happening here, despite our cultural differences with these original readers. So I want to look at what it says. I want to walk through it. And then I want to think about ways that it applies. One that I think is biblical but fragile. And one that I think we often forget about. So uh, let's read this text uh, here starting in verse 17. Leviticus 22 verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, If any of you, whether an Israelite or a foreigner residing in Israel, presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herds or flocks a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a freewill offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Now, these are the rules for free will or for votive, your text might say votive, or vow offerings. Uh, remember, there are several different types of offerings in the Bible. There's burnt offerings, there's reparation offerings, there's purification offerings. Here are free will and votive offerings. Here's the requirements for them. Uh, there's some flexibility here in these offerings, as we'll see, but here are the general conditions. And a key word here in verses 20 and 21 is the word accepted. These are the ways, this is how you can tell that an offering will be a suitable substitute. This is how the offering will be acceptable to God. Keep that word in mind, it's going to show up later, this word acceptable. Again, verses 20 and 21 have the general statement, no defects. And then verses 22 and following get more specific. Um, you might remember last week when we read about the priests, the priests had to be physically whole. Well, now the animals that they bring must be physically whole as well. And actually, huh, these conditions are the same. They must, must both be physically whole in the same ways. Look at verses 22 to 25. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. You may, however, here, here's the um, 
an exception. You may, however, present as a free will offering an ox or a sheep that is deformed or stunted, but it will not be accepted in fulfillment of a vow. You must not offer to the Lord an animal whose testicles are bruised, crushed, torn, or cut. You must not do this in your own land, and you must not accept such animals from the hand of a foreigner and offer them as the food of your God. They will not be accepted on your behalf because they are deformed and have defects. Now, in verses 26 through 28, uh, he goes into some a little bit more unusual rules, things that aren't um, as easily grasped by us. But look what it says. The Lord said to Moses, when a calf or a lamb, when a calf, a lamb, or a goat is born, it is to remain with its mother for seven days. From the eighth day on, it will be acceptable as a food offering presented to the Lord. Verse 28, do not slaughter a cow or a sheep and its young on the same day. Now, these are a couple of unusual uh, requirements here, and I think what ties them together, why they're here, is that God is trying to instill in the Israelites a certain respect for creative life, in the process of how life works and what life does. There is something beautiful and whole about a young animal with its mother. It's, it's, a, it's a fulfilling, it's a satisfying sight. And, and he's, he's almost saying to them, Enjoy that for a few days. Now, if that's not behind us, I, I wonder maybe this first requirement is uh, they need to wait seven days to make sure the animal, the, the newborn animal, doesn't have any defects. And they'll become uh, evident in three or four days, but they won't be evident on the day of birth. I definitely think that it is a respect for life that is in touch in, in, behind verse 28. Um, sacrifices are not to be wild and indiscriminate. You're supposed to preserve the herd. Be careful about your sacrifice. Don't go crazy uh, with them. Offer them wisely. Uh, There are other passages like this in the law where God has requirements, rules, and I think the aim of them is to, again, instill in the Israelites this recognition that we're stewards. They were, and well, we are too, stewards of this world that God has made. Uh, We live in Lancaster County. It's a a wonderful privilege to live in Lancaster County. There's farms everywhere. And and I think that this this verse, among other things, reminds us of of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the midst of uh, how we care for all these animals. We're, We're to strike the balance, I think, here, between two opposite errors that people fall into. On the one hand... Uh, we recognize that animals are not human beings. Animals are not people. God gave them to us for food and to help us labor. Hunting isn't a form of animal cruelty. Not every animal needs a name or an air-conditioned house or a life purpose statement. Right? There's a certain amount of uh, uh, ways in which it's okay to keep an animal in a fence and in a cage. That's, that's okay. And the opposite error that we don't want to fall in either is we don't want to treat animals as junk, as if they're refuse to be abused or, or cared for thoughtlessly. Uh, verse 29, as we, as we keep reading here, talks about uh, rules for thank offerings. We're familiar with these, I think, about when they should be eaten. Look what it says. When you sacrifice a thank offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It must be eaten that same day. Leave none of it till morning. I am the Lord. And then this summary statement in verses 31 to 33. Keep my commands. Follow them. 
I am the Lord. Do not profane. Oh, that word has shown up a lot in these chapters, isn't it? Profane. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Here's the principle. Sacrifice is a reflection of our relationship with God. And And God is saying to the Israelites, you should honor me. You should treat me as holy in the sacrifices that you bring. Do not bring your discards. Do not bring the uh, refuse of your herd. Do not bring the animals that you think uh, won't be of any value to you. Bring a sacrifice that is in keeping with my identity as the Lord and my holiness. I called you out, therefore you are to uh, honor me by calling me out in the sacrifices that you bring. Now, this is the temptation that the people face, this commandment that's here. In fact, I want to show you that um, uh, a thousand years after Moses first wrote these words, the Israelites were struggling with this. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. And you'll find your page number of Malachi on that blue sheet if you're looking in the Pew Bibles. It's on page 958. Uh, If you're looking in your Bible, go to Matthew and turn left. Uh, Malachi, of course, is the last book in the Old Testament, last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I want to read a portion of it to you, and you're going to hear a lot of these same words and concepts that have already we just read in the book of Leviticus. God is condemning the people for disobeying what He said in Leviticus chapter 22. Listen to this here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Malachi 1, 6. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Pay your taxes with these animals. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, said the Lord Almighty? There's that word accept again. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light yourselves light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it. Oh, there's that word again, isn't it? You profane it. By saying, the Lord's temple is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, 
says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The quality of the sacrifices communicates the worth that they attribute to God. Sick, blind, lame, diseased animals say what about God? He doesn't matter. He doesn't care. He doesn't count. We're not impressed with Him. We don't feel obligated to honor Him. Sacrifice reflects your relationship with God. That's what Leviticus 22 says. What I want to think about, though, as our time continues in the Word, is what does it mean? How does it apply? I think there's a very common way that we apply this text, and I think then, in contrast to that, there's a better way to read this text. Um, your mind actually, because some of you have been around church for a long time, your mind might already be moving in a specific direction. You, you don't have to be particularly religious to be thinking about this. The language of sacrifice is deeply embedded in our culture. M- maybe you're already there. This could be, this could be a wonderful opportunity for me to speak to you about your life and how the sacrifices that you make reflect reverence for God. And I could go to a number of passages in the New Testament where that would be true. I found some of them. They're on that blue sheet that's in your bulletin, these passages. I found them by doing a very simple word search in my, with my New Testament concordance. Look, look at these verses here that push us in this direction a little bit. There's a bunch of them. Romans 12. You know that already, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Does your text there say, maybe not holy and pleasing, your translation might say, acceptable. Ah, that word, again, from Leviticus, acceptable. Acceptable to God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now look over here at 2 Corinthians 8. Your whole life is to be a sacrifice, Romans 12. 2 Corinthians 8, he's talking about giving, as a sacrifice, and there's that key word here, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. That word acceptable. The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. First Peter 2. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering what? Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continue to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Lastly here, again he's talking about gifts, the gift, financial gift that the church in Philippi has sent them. Him. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Here's here's the appeal that I can make. And maybe this is the direction that your mind went. Uh, It's a good one. It's it's a biblical direction to go. Here it is. Your singing, your giving, your life itself is like a sacrifice. And just like sacrifices in the Old Testament were to be unblemished, you should make every effort. Uh, Don't be sloppy in how you serve. 
Um, when you clean the church, when you mow the lawn, when you weed the beds, when you prepare a lesson, when you lead your growth group, when you plan to sing a solo, do it well. Do it with every effort that you have. Um, Leviticus 22 reminds us, let's raise the standard of the sacrifices that we bring. Paul Dixon was the president of Cedarville when I was there, and he had a line he said to us, it seems like weekly, everything a Christian does should have quality stamped all over it. It's a great line. It's a true line. Many true things. God is a great king. Serve him well. That's a biblical message. It's a good one. But it's one that I think we move to a little fast and we go a little bit further than Leviticus 22 would have us. I think, I think we enjoy hearing calls like that. Um, we enjoy, enjoy hearing calls to raise the standard. Um, it's not easy, but it appeals to us, and it appeals to our efforts, because we want to work hard, and we want to do things. So tell me what to do. There's, there's problems with just going there too fast. Here's some of the problems, some of the complications. When I talk about raising the standard of my sacrifice, recognize it's something that we can measure. Something that I can measure. If my sacrifices regard, uh, reflect my relationship with God, I can measure how well I'm doing because I can evaluate this. I can discern how well I really am doing. I can discern, I can measure how much effort I'm putting into uh, my relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? If I can measure it, then I can compare it. Not just to myself, but I can compare it to you. How, how many hours did you give this week? What percentage of your income do you give? Do I really think that you're wearing your best clothes on Sunday? You probably have better clothes than that. Uh, when you sing, do you really close your eyes and really mean it? I can measure my standard of sacrifice and I can compare it to you. If I can measure it, I can compare it, I also can control it, can I? If sacrifice is a reflection of my relationship with God, here's something, uh, I spend this amount of time serving, I give this much money, and if I need to go up a little bit to, to feel more comfortable in my relationship with God, I can. I submit to you that this is a mindset that you easily fall into you easily fall into the mindset of taking your life and evaluating your relationship with God on the basis of how much you give, how much you do, how much you serve, how much effort you put into. That's not, I don't think, where Leviticus 22 wants us to go. Here's an example of, of somebody who does this. We, we would never be this explicit. But listen, Warren Buffett, several years ago, you know the name Warren Buffett. He's one of the richest men in the world. Uh, in uh, 2006, he announced his plan that over the next several years, he was going to donate 85% of his $44 billion fortune, and he was going to give it to five charitable foundations. If I'm measuring, if I'm comparing, um, I, there's no, I will never give that much money away. I hope, I hope that his money does, does great things. I hope it alleviates poverty. I hope it educates people. I hope, I hope that it's used to help people in this world. I hope that his gifts go far. But listen to what he said about his gift. 
There is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. See, we, don't say, we wouldn't say anything that explicit. Maybe we say things like, well, there's, there's a great way. There, there's more than one way to measure your relationship with God, but the number of hours that I serve serving is a great way to, to tell. It's a great indication of the health of, of my relationship with God. We can mark Leviticus 22 as law that, that binds and defines and that earns and that condemns. Um, if you uphold the level of your sacrifice as a marker of the quality of your relationship with God, you, you don't measure up, do you? It's the problem with this. If I can control it, if I can compare it, if I can measure it, I don't always meet my standards. You cut corners sometimes. Your attitude isn't always great. Sometimes you're stingy. Sometimes you're just tired and you don't want to serve. If we go right from this passage about the quality of animal sacrifices immediately to our own sacrifices, we're going to embrace a graceless religion and we'll either end up proud because we measure up pretty well as we think about it, or we'll end up in despair because we don't recognize, we don't meet the standard. And some of you go back and forth between those two things. If your relationship with God is measured, if it's sustained, if it's upheld by the quality of your life, by your joy, um, your, your, your experience, your assurance will be as steady as your performance, and no one is that good. In fact, um, we're in this passage of Scripture, um, uh, why reading the Bible as as a measure, as uh, reading the Bible as as a set of rules for your life, it fails because we can't meet the standards. That's why the sacrifices were established in the first place. We don't measure up, and the penalty for falling short is death. Everybody who brought an animal to sacrifice was saying to God, I don't measure up and I don't meet the standards and I deserve to die and here's an animal that I'm offering in my stead. I don't think using our sacrifices as the standard is a way to apply Leviticus chapter 22. It's not the chief way that the New Testament applies it. It's not even how the Israelites were supposed to read it. Remember what's at the end of Leviticus 22. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. How did that end? With grace. God rescued us from Egypt. He rescued us. That's how the passage ends. It ends with with grace. I do think that sacrifice reflects your relationship with God. I think that's true. But it is not your sacrifice that reflects your relationship with God. It's the sacrifice of the Lamb that was provided for us. I think that's how the book of Hebrews applies this passage. In fact, I want to show that to you, if you, if you would, here. Take your Bibles and turn to me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Again, the page number is written on that blue sheet if you need help finding it. But Hebrews is towards the end of the New Testament, just within the last several pages. If you're in the book of uh, Revelation or the book of Concordance, turn left. And I want it, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 is where I want to direct your attention. Look, look at what the passage says. Uh, the author of Hebrews is thinking about all these regulations in Leviticus. And what does he say? Now there have been many of those priests, priests we read about, since death prevented them from continuing in office. <laughs> that is kind of a problem. Um, you can't keep your position. I sometimes joke with 
people who serve on committees in our church that um, the only way you can get off a committee in our church is by dying. And if you're chairman, that might not even work. Well, um, in this instance, the priest died. They can't keep serving. Verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is the perfect priest. Christ is the perfect priest. And that goes along, I suppose, with Leviticus 21. Now, flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 10, just a couple pages over. We're going to see here, Christ is the perfect sacrifice. If you're reading Leviticus 22 through the eyes of Hebrews, you see it not as a pointer to your own sacrifices, you see it as a pointer to the Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Look, I want to show you. Here we go. Verse 1, The law is only a shadow of the great things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, why would, would, they need, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers could have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here am I, I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, Sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, that is, the old sacrifices, to establish the second, his own sacrifice, which was God's will. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, the Lord Jesus, when this priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He is the perfect sacrifice. That's what we're supposed to think about when Leviticus 22, when we read Leviticus 22. We're not to read the description of perfect sacrifices and immediately think about our own lives. Our giving, our serving, our sacrifice. I think you're supposed to read it and uh, look with joy at the Lord Jesus who is the unblemished sacrifice without parallel. He's the one who establishes and maintains and will bring to completion your relationship with God. Ask yourself here, as, as, as you measure your relationship with God, which is more important as, as, a, as a good standard of your acceptability to God? Which speaks more to that? Is it your sacrifice or the Lord's sacrifice? His sacrifice or yours? Now, because we're in church, everybody knows right, the right answer, right? Jesus. 
Okay, that's the right answer. But I wonder, I, wonder, I wonder what you think about when you go to bed at night, when you lay down in those few minutes before you fall asleep. Maybe sometimes it's been a great day. It's been a great day. You get up early in the morning and you read two extra chapters of the Bible and you prayed for all the missionaries you know by name. And you whistled, you walked into the job site, you whistled as you went. You shared the gospel with a coworker at lunchtime. When you got home, you talked to the, the kids. Um, and after dinner, you led the most beautiful time of devotions that has ever been done around a family table. Your wife was in tears and two of your kids committed to the mission field. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. You tucked your kids into bed, you spoke, and then afterwards you spoke seriously and kindly to your wife about her own soul, and then you went to bed, and before you drifted off to sleep, you thought, oh, it's been such a good day. What about if it's been a bad day, though? You stayed up too late the night before watching something stupid on television, so you missed your devotions completely. You just slept right through your alarm. You got angry with your employees and you yelled at them. And when you got home, you sulked over the mail. You were silent during dinner. You fought with your kids. You threw them into bed. And you yourself stormed off to your bedroom silently. Which is more important on that day, either of those days, as the standard of whether or not you're grateful? Is it your sacrificial service or is it the work of the Lord Jesus? Every day, brothers and sisters, good and bad, invested or wasted, successful or failure, it's Him. He is the sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. He established, He sustains, He'll finish your walk with God. I think this chapter of Leviticus 22 is a call for us to revel in this. It's a call for us to, to say to one another, what does God require? God requires a perfect lamb. And look, He's come. He's come. He's already come. The sacrifice has been made. We're to revel in that in this chapter. My sacrifices are not very impressive. My service is half-hearted. But He carries us. He carries us. It's through Him that we draw near. Every day, on your best day and on your worst day. Sky Jathani is a writer for Christianity Today, and he wrote in one of his books about a weekend he had with several young adults. It was an open forum weekend, and they, they were gathered to talk about all kinds of things. They talked about um, uh, uh, God's sovereignty. They talked about hell. They talked about dating. <laughs> Sometimes those are the same things. And uh, he was... Um, he was... They would sit and they would talk and they would ask questions. And uh, one day, uh, one of the, the sessions, uh, they were going to get around and discuss their, their habitual sins. And all of them had a, they had a variety of different habitual sins, but they all agreed on one thing. God is disappointed with me. As a student, he quotes a student. My parents were students at a Christian college in the early 90s when a revival broke out. They were on fire for God, and here I am consumed by sin day after day after day. And he said students were crying. They would talk to one another about the, their belief. God is disappointed with me. God is disappointed with me. So Jathani asked them as, as he listened. He, he said to them, how, how many of you are raised in a Christian home? Every single one of them raised their hand. 
How many of you grew up in a Bible-centered church? Again, their hands went up. Jethani said to them, you, you've all spent 18 or 20 years in a church. You've been taught the Bible from the time that you could crawl, and you attend Christian colleges, but not one of you gave the right answer. Not one of you said that in the midst of your sin, God still loves you. He, he writes this, I did not blame the students for their failure. Somewhere in their spiritual formation, they were taught, either explicitly or implicitly, that what mattered was not God's love for them, but how much they could accomplish for him. Leviticus 22 is a passage that's supposed to help raise the standard. Raise the standard so high, no one in this room can meet it. But the Lord Jesus has. And we exalt in that. Good days, bad days. When when your Sunday school lesson goes perfect and you're all prayed up for Sunday school and, and when your growth group is a disaster and you just can't wait for the people to get out of your house. It's the Lord's sacrifice. It's His sacrifice that establishes, maintains, sustains, and will bring an end to your relationship with Him. It's, it's this Lamb, this Savior that the Bible calls you to believe in, to look to. My track record is flawed. I have not earned God's approval. No one has except the Lord Jesus. He lived that life that we should have lived, every single one of us. And then He died the death that we deserved as our substitute. We remind one another, look to Him, rely on Him, trust in Him, revel in what He has done. And you know, the unexpected irony of that is that a truly sacrificial life is lived by those who really grasp Christ's sacrifice. That's the secret to living a really sacrificial life. A secret really to raising the standard of your own service is letting His sacrifice sink deeply into your heart. That's when your own sacrificial love will flow freely, gladly. Think about it in Leviticus 22. An Israelite shepherd walks out to his field and he says, God has freed us from slavery in Egypt. Where is my best sheep? Where's my best goat that I could take? Because God has freed us from slavery in Egypt. We who are followers of Jesus Christ, we say, God has freed us from sin and death. And then you give yourself away. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful to you for this passage that invites us to revel again in the perfection of the Lord Jesus. He was spiritually pure he was morally upright he had righteous eyes that that saw everything truly his gait was was uh, straight and smooth he was not corrupted he did not need to offer a sacrifice for himself and in that regard the lord jesus is a great great savior oh god i pray that you would help us to revel in that would you, would you make the reality of his perfect sacrifice a, a louder note, a, a more triumphant song in our minds than our own failures? We fail to believe as we ought. We fail to obey as we ought. We fail to give as we ought and to serve as we ought. How grateful we are that the Lord Jesus, the one in whom you delight, obeyed, and died and rose again in our behalf. Grant, Father, that 
that we might revel in that truth joyfully. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.